I'd invite your attention this morning to Luke chapter 22. Let's all stand together as we reverence the reading of God's Word, a message I call, When We Sin Like Peter Sinned, uh, We Need to Repent uh, Like Peter Repented. When We Sin Like Peter Sinned. Luke chapter 22, verse 61. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter, and Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he had said to him, Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. So Peter went out and wept bitterly. May God bless the reading of his word today is my prayer. You may be seated. We'll be considering this great passage this morning, Luke chapter 22, under this general heading of the relationship between sin and repentance. And if ever there was an example of a divine truth that these passages then combine to give us, it is this one because 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 12 says, Therefore let him who thinketh he standeth uh, take heed lest he fall. Let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. And that was exactly, you see, where Simon Peter was earlier on in the chapter, Luke chapter 22 and verse 23. Jesus had told them uh, that they would all betray him that night. They would all depart from him. And it was at that moment that Simon Peter said, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. And Jesus said to him, I tell you, Peter, the rooster shall not crow this day before you will deny me uh, three times or deny three times that you know me. In Matthew's account, he was even bolder. Though all men, he said, might be offended because of thee, yet will I never be offended. Never. I don't think Simon Peter was making that up. I think he was expressing exactly what was on his heart. You might be worried about all these other guys. But Jesus, you can count on me. I will never be offended. I'll never stumble. Let him who thinketh he standeth take heed lest he fall. Now, sometimes we face sin as a kind of long-term unwelcome guest that we'd like to get rid of, but we just can't seem to uh, find a way to make them leave. You know, it just uh, we, we kind of keep them around and... We wish they'd go, but we don't wish they'd go long, big enough or hard enough to actually make them go. And some sins are like that. They're habits, bad habits, uh, bad choices then that turned into bad habits. And I'm not going to go very far down that road because uh, the list is long and it never relates to the same one of us exactly the same way as it does anybody else. We all have of the sin, the Bible says, that does so easily beset us. We call them besetting sins. And your problem's not mine, mine's not yours. There's a whole long list of things uh, that can plague us, things that we struggle with, uh, but we've all got them. Uh, Jesus said in many things, we all offend. We all offend. We all stumble in some areas and, and sometimes catastrophically. But our passage is not seemingly to be, does not seem to be struggling with uh, that kind of situation. It wasn't that Simon Peter was struggling with some long-term problem in his life. Uh, this was something that came out of nowhere. 
He was a devoted follower of Jesus Christ. He was strong in his faith. He was a preacher. He was a miracle worker. He had gone to school with the Lord Jesus Christ and learned at his feet for three and a half years, and he was warned. Not some vague kind of general kind of thing. Sometime next year or sometime in the next 10 years or so, you might have something kind of like this happen, but in a matter of hours, before the sun rises, before the rooster crows, you'll deny me three times. He was warned, and yet he still walked right into it. How is it that we can think we're doing well, following Jesus, living for him, and yet we can be in mortal danger spiritually and not even know it? How, how can that be? Well, one thing that if we're not careful, we'll overlook in this passage is the presence of the enemy, and not just his presence, but his prominence in this passage. In a way, his story, Simon Peter's story, is set in opposition to Judas's story. Luke chapter 22 and verse 3 says this, Then entered Satan into Judas, surnamed Iscariot, being of the number of the twelve. Now, Luke presents that rather matter-of-factly. He doesn't give us really any information about when that happened, but John was very specific. John chapter 13, verse 25, as Jesus predicted his betrayal, and others, especially John, were asking, was asking him, uh, Lord, who is it? And Jesus answered, It is he to whom I shall give a piece of bread when I have dipped it. And having dipped the bread, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. Now after the piece of bread, Satan entered him. And then Jesus said to him, what you do, do quickly. So Satan had entered Judas to use him in this act of ultimate betrayal, but he was also after Simon. Isn't that interesting? We might go on and say he was after all the rest of them because they were sitting around arguing over who was going to be in charge after Jesus died of all times. So getting a church squabble this time, that night. All oh, the enemy's tracks are all over that. But the Lord had said in Luke chapter 22, verse 31, Simon, Simon, indeed Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail, and when you've returned to me, strengthen your brethren. So at the same time that he's entered Judas, at the same time that he's stirring up all the other disciples, he is after Simon Peter. In a very interesting passage when he says that Satan has asked for you. There's no indication that Satan had to ask for Judas. And if there was ever any question in my mind about whether or not Judas was saved, and really there ever has been, let me tell you something, Judas was lost. And I know he was lost because this very passage, Satan entered Judas, doesn't say that about Simon Peter. He had to ask permission to come against Simon Peter. He didn't have to ask permission to go to Judas and get him. No, that was, that was there already. And though Judas was a church member, though he had been baptized like everybody else, though he was a church treasurer, though he was active in church, he was lost and on the road to hell because he had never trusted Jesus Christ as his Savior. And I know that because the devil entered him. And he didn't have to ask for permission, but he did have to ask for permission to come against Simon Peter. 
Interesting that Jesus compared that to sifting. Sift you like wheat. Now we're far, far removed from those ancient days. So let me just tell you, the sifting of wheat was accomplished as they would put it out on what's called a threshing floor. They would cut the wheat, put it on the threshing floor, and they would beat it with rods, sticks. And they had those uh, winnowing uh, forks that they would use then to throw it up in the air, and the wind uh, would blow the chaff away, and the wheat, of course, would settle down then. It was a, a process by which the, the wheat was separated uh, from the chaff. And it was probably that beating process that Jesus was describing when he said, Satan wants to sift you. He wants to thrash on you for a while. And in fact, in uh, South Arkansas, we still talk about people getting a good thrashing. He needs, <laughs> and, and we may even do it around here some. And if you ever hear that word, you want to know what it means? Well, that's where it goes back to. Simon Peter, uh, according to Satan, needed a good thrashing. Now, just let me add him. He had to ask for permission. I'm, I'm not, I'll have to stop there because there's so many things I want to say about that. I'll just say to you this morning that while Satan had to ask for permission, he did get it. He did get it. He did go against Simon Peter. He did thrash him. He was, in fact, sifted. With the enemy so much on the prowl and so active in their immediate presence, it is no wonder that Jesus would tell these men that very night, verse 40 of Luke 22, pray that you may enter, may not enter into temptation. He told them several times. And of course they slept through their prayer time. There are times when we're tempted, like James says, when we're drawn away of our own lusts and enticed. And uh, the temptations literally come from within. But there are also times when the enemy is very active in his efforts against us. And it lives out what Simon Peter himself, of all people, warned us about. 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 8, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Now, in Bible times, in, the, in, in this century, when Simon Peter was writing that, you might think, well, there was uh, no lions in Israel. Uh, I beg to differ. There were over a million lions, uh, science estimates, uh, uh, stretching on up into Europe and uh, all the way across Israel, all those areas. They were all inhabited by lions at that time. Less than 35,000, they estimate, remain in the, in the wild today. Over a million back in those days. And very much so uh, present in Israel, they knew exactly what they were talking about. Uh, when a lion roars, by the way, at night, they say the roar can be heard for five miles. And they roar also when they are on that last lunge for attack. And they do it to try to freeze their prey. You can imagine that huge, loud sound with that lion rushing at you at 50 miles an hour. You don't have time to blink if you're not ready. They're on you before you're done. And so the roaring lion that Simon Peter warns us about tells us that he is constantly on the prowl looking for whom or on the prowl looking for whom he may devour. Here we are, moving along in our faith, seemingly doing well. Out of nowhere, then there's a time of failure. We thought we were standing. And instead we've done a face plant. Pow! 
or we find ourselves sitting on our backside. Boom, we fell the other way. How did this happen? I thought I was doing okay. I was following Jesus. I was living for Him. I loved Jesus, going to church, reading my Bible, doing my prayers. How did this happen? How have I failed? How have I fallen? So suddenly, out of nowhere, how did this happen? Well, sometimes if you look around, there were paw prints all around you. The devil's hit you. Before you even knew he was around, he was on you. So sometimes temptation does indeed come from within. That's true. But this is a case where Simon Peter was doing well, but here he was under the oppression attack of the enemy. And he's on his face, on his backside. He's been knocked down. He's fallen. He's failed. We do not consider this passage in order to gloat over Simon Peter's failure, but to glory in his repentance and his restoration. Because the story, you see, has a set and settled ending. Because Jesus told him, I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail, and it didn't fail. And when you have returned to me, not if, when you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. This morning we're going to draw some principles of biblical repentance out of this passage so that we, as God's people today, uh, can learn how that when we have fallen, how we can take those same steps of repentance and experience that same kind of restoration that Simon Peter experienced. Now, maybe for just a moment or two, we need to take a negative view of repentance, and that is to just kind of explain what repentance isn't. First of all, repentance is not a simple feeling of regret. I feel regret every time I paint. Uh, paint and carpet don't mix very well. Have y'all noticed that? You thought you were doing well, all of a sudden down there, there's a big old spot of paint. Man, <clears throat> that's regret. I see that big old splotch up there where we missed the trim and hit the sheetrock. Ah, man, we went just one step too far with the roller. Now it's on the ceiling. Man. Floor, wall, ceiling, you're getting an idea of the kind of painting that I do. It's regret. It's regret. That's not repentance. It's not a sense of wounded pride that comes when we think, well, I'm a better person than this. And a lot of times that's prompted by a second kind of thing. Well, what are other people going to think? And that's our pride at stake. So there is a worldly kind of repentance, but there is also a biblical kind of repentance. And the place that we go to to contrast those two is, is in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, uh, where Paul said, Now I rejoice not that you were made sorrow, sorry, but that your sorrow led to repentance. For you were made sorry in a godly manner that you may suffer loss from us in nothing. For godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation, not to be regretted, 
but the sorrow of the world produces death. For observe this very thing, that you sorrow in a godly manner. That's repentance. What diligence it produced in you, what clearing of yourself, what indignation, what fear, what vehement desire, what zeal, what vindication. In all things you proved yourself to be clear in this matter. Now, the very fact that he puts these passages together in this way would tell us that a Christian can indeed choose regret or sorrow or repentance in a worldly kind of way. It's that kind of worldly regret. Christians can choose that. But when we do, notice that he tells us that that kind of sorrow produces death. It is a feeling of regret and remorse that can literally kill you or cause you to kill yourself. Because we're full of sorrow, but there's nowhere for it to go, and it doesn't do any good. It is just the constant remembering of our failure, the constant feelings of regret and remorse. That comes easily. It comes to everybody, Christian or, or non-Christian. It can come to anybody, and if it gets bad enough, can have a very tragic ending. Did I make that up? No. Remember I told you from the beginning in many ways what happened to Simon Peter is contrasted with what happened to Judas. What did Judas do? Matthew 27, 3. Judas, which had betrayed him, when he saw that he was condemned, repented himself and brought again the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders, saying, I have sinned and that I have betrayed the innocent blood. And they said, What is that to us? See thou to that. And he cast down the pieces of silver in the temple and departed and went out and hanged himself. That's Judas. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 7, the sorrow of the world leads to death. There's a lot of people out there that are going to carry their sorrow and regret and remorse to the grave. Have nowhere for it to go, no way to deal with it, no way to get rid of it. But these people had experienced a godly sorrow. They had repented. And as a result, it had brought zeal, it had brought vindication, it had brought indignation toward uh, that sin. They, they are hating sin now again and angry at sin and what it had done to them. They are ready to move forward and go forward. Why? Because they had repented in a godly manner. So there is a worldly kind of sorrow, a worldly kind of repentance that leads to death. But there is a godly sorrow. That leads to repentance, true repentance. And that's what I'm going to put before you this morning. Three quick things we're going to see about it. First of all, this kind of repentance is divinely initiated. Uh, and the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he had said to him, Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. You know, if you ever feel like you're in a crowd of, of people and it feels like somebody is staring at you, there's a pretty good chance somebody is. Uh, I, in, in preaching, I try to look around over the crowd and scan the crowd. I look at all of you, but I avoid locking eyes with anybody because the minute I do, you know it. <laughs> Every one of you, <laughs> you know it. 
and, and so here is, is Jesus, and he's being persecuted by the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day. And uh, in the midst of it all, Simon Peter is over there denying for the third time that he knew Jesus. And again, you know, this is astonishing to me. I can't explain it to you. It's just a matter of human weakness. But then I can't explain some of the things I do either. Can anybody say amen to that? I mean, Jesus said, you're going to deny me three times. You'd think after the second denial, (laughs) he would have thought, I'm not going to do it again. I said I never would. Hmm. But he did. And the moment that he did, there was the Lord turning and looking at Peter. So understand this morning, true repentance is always initiated by God. Look, the first sin, and God came to Adam and Eve in the garden. Eve was sowing. Adam was hiding. And neither one of them wanted to deal with God. But it was God who came to them saying, where art thou? And that question was not posed for God's benefit. He hadn't lost track of where Adam was. It was posed for Adam's benefit. Where are you? That still small voice we think of often in Scripture. What doest thou hear, Elijah? Go call your husband. Go down to the potter's house. There was once a poor man, and all he had was one cherished lamb. Still, small voice. You see, sin puts a silence in the soul. And that still, small voice of conviction cries very loudly in a silent soul. Thunders there like nothing else can. So repentance is true repentance. It's always divinely initiated. God is always the one that starts it. Then biblical repentance is emotionally intense. Not only is it divinely initiated, but it is emotionally intense. Verse 62, Peter went out and wept bitterly, wept bitterly. It's possible perhaps for us to weep without repenting, uh, but I'm not sure that true repentance ever really occurs without weeping. There's no such thing, I can say this, no such thing as casual repentance. There's a lot of things that I'm pretty casual about. I'm I'm pretty casual about baseball. I always was. I can watch it, but you know what? I can live without it. Uh, A lot of you might be uh, kind of like my wife, Nancy. She's not real casual. She's kind of casual about fishing. She can do it, but she can live without it. Uh, Brother, when I'm fishing, there's nothing casual about it. Anybody know that? I'm I'm serious. Serious uh, about fishing. But uh, um, no such thing as casual repentance. Simon Peter went out, the Bible says, and wept bitterly. Once you look at how Joel describes it in Joel chapter 2 and verse 12, therefore also now saith the Lord turn ye even to me with all your heart and with fasting and with weeping and with mourning 
and rend your heart and not your garments and turn unto the Lord your God for he is gracious and merciful slow to anger and of great kindness and repenteth him of the evil who knoweth if he will return and repent and leave a blessing behind him even a meat offering and a drink offering unto the Lord your God Joel, you see, had brought to them a message of divine judgment, a divine disaster that was looming upon their horizon. But he called on them to come before God with fasting and with weeping and with mourning and rend their hearts before him. Who knows if God might turn from what he had determined to do. I don't want to overcomplicate things for you this morning because it's not a complicated matter. But when we find ourselves locked into a repeated cycle of sin and failure, where we find ourselves struggling in the same area again and again and again, there's a pretty good chance that we're not repenting like Peter repented. He went out and wept bitterly. His heart was broken by a look. Broken. Biblical repentance, repentance then, is divinely initiated. It is emotionally intense. And it's also personally isolating. Verse 62, Simon Peter went out. He went out. He was in a crowd, but he had to get out. He went out and wept bitterly. I doubt that anybody even noticed that the Lord looked at Simon Peter, except the Lord and Simon Peter. But in the end, those are the only two that matter. It's not about anybody else. We can live our lives, you see, in absolute bondage to what people think and, and uh, be committed, sold out to keeping up appearances. But when it comes to just me and Jesus, he always knows the truth. He knows it better than we do. And it is born then, this genuine repentance is born out of our personal connection with God through Jesus Christ. That sense that the Holy Spirit brings to our life. Then that this is something that needs to be dealt with. And it's not about what anybody else thinks. And God in heaven only knows how much could be accomplished if we could simply manage to liberate ourselves from worrying about what everybody thinks. And just get out there and do business with God. Who knows how many services we'd have with altars filled with people. Or even better, going out into the service, maybe out in the, you know, I wouldn't be surprised, I wouldn't be sad to see people on their knees, on their face, out in the parking lot. What will people think? Who cares? That's where we get to that point then when we can begin to truly do business with God because it's just me and Jesus. And I'm concerned with what he has brought uh, to my life. It's not to say there's, a time, there's not a time and place for public apologies. There are. There is. But what really matters is our time with God. 
biblical repentance then is personally isolating, where we get everybody else out of our mind and it's just me and Jesus. I want to wrap this up then this morning with a couple of passages. Romans chapter 2 and verse 4 asks a question. Do you despise the riches of His goodness, forbearance, and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? Uh, I guess, uh, you know, I've read the Bible early on in life. I guess I've always known that passage in the Bible, but I lived a long time without really thinking about it. But I want you to know this morning that godly repentance is initiated by the goodness of God. We think God's going to get us. That is not near as much of a threat to us as considering how good God is and how much He loves us and how much He's done for us. And how can I disappoint Him? How can I let Him down? How? Can I be doing this? The goodness of God leads us to repentance. I put 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 9 in here today because there's two kinds of people in the world. There's heaven-bound sinners and hell-bound sinners. And both of them need repentance. And Simon Peter in 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 9 is talking about the return of Jesus Christ. And I want you to know this morning that Jesus is coming back, coming back. And it's not, it's not going to be that long. He is coming again. And this world is going to have to deal with him. You don't want to have to deal with Jesus in, his, in your sins. And this whole chapter, 2 Peter chapter 3, is all about that. But here's this great reminder. The Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. We might wonder sometimes why if Jesus is coming back, coming again, why is it taking so long? Second <laughs> Peter 3 and 9 gives you an answer to that question. God is long-suffering to usward. Not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. God has been long-suffering with me. He's been long-suffering to all of us. But God is not willing that any should perish. God wants you to repent. Repentance is a part of the gospel. That's why when the Bible says that Jesus went about preaching the gospel, he printed, uh, preached repentance toward God. Sorry that I've stumbled so much this morning. He preached repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Repentance and faith. Repentance means to turn, to turn around. And it literally refers to that time when we understand that we've got our backs to God and we turn around to Him. And by faith then, and that's the only way we could ever turn around to face God is by faith that He's not going to kill me on the spot. Repentance and faith then, we repent, we turn from our sin, we turn to God. What are we doing? We're believing on the Lord Jesus Christ who died in our place. We're claiming then the promise of God that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. That can be your testimony today to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. You've been going your own way all your life. You're in this service and lost. You may have thought it was different. It wasn't. It hasn't been.
you haven't received Jesus Christ today as your Savior, you might even be a religious person. Judas was. And still be lost. I plead with you today. The long-suffering of God calls out to you to repent. Paul preached it. He now commands, that's God, now commands all men everywhere to repent. You can't be saved without it. Godly sorrow. Godly sorrow. Conviction of sin. Awareness that I failed. How do we deal with it? Well, number one, if it was just left up to me and you, we probably wouldn't deal with it. Eve might have been the one that was sowing the fig leaves a long time ago, but don't think that humanity has gotten out of the fig leaf sowing business. We're still in it. it. They say to err is human, and to cover it up is too. That's our nature. That's why the Bible says there's none that seeketh after God. That all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone aside to his own way. That's humanity. Left to our own devices, we'd just keep going right on away from God. Left to our own devices, we'd just keep right on going. We'd never turn. We'd never come to God. But God does not leave us to our own devices. Because there is the Word of God. You've heard it preached today, powered by the Spirit of God. You felt Him in your heart today. And He is calling you, calling you to repentance. You can choose worldly sorrow if you want to. And you'll carry that sorrow and regret with you to your grave, but it won't do you any good. Or you can choose biblical repentance. There was a man in the Bible that Jesus said went on his way. That day justified, that means saved. What did he pray? Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. <laughs> and that man, Jesus said, went on his way justified. You can have that experience today. If you haven't, please do. Let's stand together, please.